$100,000 ransom. I don't understand the ransom. You mean to to take to rip the, rip off this city for a hundred grand? Yeah. Hey, it, it's a it's a groovy thing to do. <laughs> what are you kidding? What are they going to do with it anyway? Would you have done it? What? Would you have taken a hundred thousand dollars to call everything off? I would have taken a hundred thousand dollars as to calling it off. <laughs> well. Well, how much is it worth to you to call it off? Call off a what? Million? Would you have done it for a million? Revolution? Yeah. What's your price? My life. Okay. Hello, everybody. It's Chapo. We are back, and we've got a stacked show for you today to discuss Aaron Sorkin's latest masterpiece, The Trial of the Chicago 7. And what do you know it? There's seven of us here. It's Matt Christman, Felix Peterman, Amber Frost, me, Will Menneker, Chris Wade on the boards, and joining us are Chapo, certified Aaron Sorkin experts, bad boy Josh Olson, and America's sweetheart Dave Anthony from the West Wing thing and soon to be hosting the upcoming West Wing thing, West Wing Reunion. So we've got our Sorkin experts on deck and we are all on trial, or rather we are putting Aaron Sorkin on trial for his crimes against humanity. The film is The Trial of the Chicago 7 about the famous Trial of the Chicago 7. Um, There's a lot to talk about in this movie. I want to thank uh, Josh and Dave for being here. Um, but I think we should just begin by uh, sharing our just our, our, our overall impressions uh, of the movie. Just just in in a circle here, I'll lead it off. I I I, I may risk absolute um, ostracization from this podcast, but up until the very end of this movie, I thought it was mostly pretty watchable and entertaining. It was a good cast. Boo! Yeah, all right. Uh, I mean, obviously, we can get into the various travesties against uh, history that Aaron Sorkin is uh, guilty of perpetrating, but. Uh, the thing about the thing about this movie, though, and, and Sorkin in general, is I really think that like it's the courtroom setting in which his particular talents are put to best use. Because you know, Brendan made this point about a few good men is that like a, a trial is the only time in the real world where sort of like epic, snappy dialogue does have real world consequences, and you can actually own someone with their own logic in a way that actually matters. So it's just sort of like. Yeah, there's yeah, there's That's a there, really good point. Yeah, it, it, so it's like it, it, this the Sorkinisms contained in a trial setting, I think, blunts the worst edges of it. But I mean, they still come through without a doubt, and we can get there because the ending of the movie is when it became actively nauseating <laughs> to me, despite being fairly well entertained throughout like the first two hours or so. So uh, that's me, Josh. What, what's your take? Uh, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I, uh, Matt. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing that he does and we struggle with it on the show all the time. It's like, I think Sorkin is a great propagandist. I'm not a hundred percent certain he's aware of the fact that he's a propagandist. Um, he walks That's into called this, ideology. There you go. Yeah. I mean, cause he, <laughs> he walks into this story, um, acknowledging, I'm sure you've all heard, you know, when he first got the job, he had to call up his father and ask him what the trial of the Chicago seven was. <laughs> nothing about it. I don't know how you do that. He's a couple years older than me. I know everything about it. Um, you know, when I was an infant when the fucking thing happened. But, uh, you know, he puts together a movie that it's it's amazing talking to people who knew nothing about it. They watch the film. 
Like, oh, that was pretty entertaining. You're like, yeah, it, it can pass. You know, it's when you dig into what he's actually doing with the characters and who they are and what they actually believe versus what he has them espousing in the film that you come to the real insidiousness of it. And I don't think it's him going, you know, I know I'm going to turn Abby Hoffman into a neoliberal. I just think he goes, wouldn't it be cool if Abby Hoffman said he likes the system? And and he has clearly contempt for, for the radical left, but he also wants to be uh, respected and revered by them. And um, yeah, I, I, it just, it's, it's such a benign anodyne looking film. And just as it went on and on, I just was, I, I turned it into Dave Anthony by the end. I was just looking <laughs> at it. Uh, Matt, what did you think? I was basically with Will there. Uh, it was, it was like most of his films entertaining. His movies are way better than his shows because the runtime requires him to, uh, it, it doesn't, you don't wear out your welcome with the characters as, as, as thoroughly as you do with his TV people because you can only handle that much pomposity in a concentrated dose. So it's as watchable as most of his movies are, laden with the ideologies, of course, uh, uh, but kind of like a greatest hits, like a concentrated Sorkin uh, nugget. All of his, all of his like, worldview consolidated into one expression. Uh, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. It's it's crystallized simplicity. I think that he just completely lacks curiosity as a human being to understand what anybody else in the world thinks. So he takes every character, every person he's run across, and he squeezes them through his idiot filter, and out just comes just bland nonsense. I, I just, like, if you have any understanding of the history of the Chicago 7, I don't know how you can like that film, because you're just watching something that isn't. And it's fucking crazy to watch. And just from a screenwriter's perspective, there's so many interesting moments that happen in the Chicago seven trial that he doesn't use. And even small things that would, that would color the characters are just left behind. And they're not even stuff that I think would fuck with his, his viewpoint of the world. Like when a witness comes off the witness stand and Abby Hoffman hands him a $10 bill. Well, that's not, that's that wouldn't undermine what he wants to say. It it would make the script more interesting and what's happening in the courtroom interesting and the characters more interesting. And he just leaves all that behind. So this is one of those movies that I think if I had watched it without any understanding of the history, I, I would have enjoyed it. But since I know the actual story and I'm super into the shit that happened and how fucking crazy it was, I'm just watching it mystified as to what the fuck he is doing. Amber. Um, yeah, I was going to actually uh, say something similar to what Dave said, is that the problem is, I realize that, I mean, one, there's the obvious obstacle that Sorkin doesn't like characters. He sees them as obstacles as, to the plot. Um, but the other one is that, yeah, the actual trial is a comedy, uh-huh. and Sorkin can't write comedy. I I remember just like getting like, you know, 10 minutes in and I was like, this should have, one, it should have been a miniseries because it's just, you can't consolidate those events into a, a, a movie. I, I, I really think it was a bad choice. Uh, and two, it should have been a comedy. I mean, what I would say instead of watching this terrible movie is to just get the new transcript, which is fucking hilarious. He didn't include any of the cool, funny stuff in there, like, 
you know, Ginsburg was like reciting poetry. They had like yes. Judy Collins on there and like Arlo Guthrie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they called all of these. Oh God, I think it was Freund's at one point said he wanted to call to the witness stand Karl Marx or uh, Groucho Marx, and Groucho <laughs> Marx said that he uh, supported them but that his last name might make the jury biased against uh, the defendants. <laughs> like, it's the the actual, it was real-life comedy. And so uh, Sorkin was um, uniquely unprepared uh, to tell the story. Yeah, imagine reading all that and thinking, ah, fuck it, I'm going to give 15 minutes to Ramsey Clark. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's, that was yes. the current theme in this. Uh, Ramsey Just Clark's like, the, yeah, the real sir. Yeah, the real, <laughs> yeah, the real factor of entertainment here is uh, the guy behind the desk. Although I will say, uh, among many of the excellent performances, Michael Keaton, King. Uh-huh. Uh, and yep. finally, uh, Felix, your overall takes. Uh, fans of the show and my overall struggles will know that I have gained 30 pounds during quarantine. Uh, as a result <laughs> of this weight gain, I have uh, gone on a brutal regimen of working out again back to my 2015 shape uh as a result of this i've been going to bed earlier and i actually fell asleep after watching about 15 minutes Um, uh, uh, the 15 minutes i saw were true to form uh you know technically a good movie as is you know Many of the takeout meals that I've enjoyed during this quarantine are technically <laughs> enjoyable. The chemicals <laughs> stimulate your brain in a more or less agreeable way, yet they cause you to gain 30 pounds, and that becomes a problem. Um, uh, instead, I thought I would offer something else. If this is a trial of Aaron Sorkin, I present myself as an expert witness. Not in the events of the trial. I don't really care about this. Everyone knows what I think about the 60s. It's a lost decade. Uh, nothing really there wasn't really any great cultural accomplishments from there. Uh, well, I know there were only cultural accomplishments. There were no political accomplishments. They weren't good either. The <laughs> cultural accomplishments. Uh, I think it's a lost decade. I think you can sort of disregard anyone who was born in that decade or perhaps even lived there and participated <laughs> in a lot of the stuff. Uh, you know, this was a time where you could make the equivalent of, $300,000 working as a lifeguard at a pool and you would use it to buy the loudest van possible so you and your friends could drive to a concert that lasted for a week uh, where you like uh, you know met a 14 year old au pair and that was okay back then because there was no morality yet because Nixon hadn't uh, achieved victory yet um, <laughs> I, I am instead an expert on the types of uh, people who are on trial because as many know, I grew up in a neighborhood in Hyde Park where many of these retired radicals settled and uh, shoved their annoying kids out into the world. And their annoying kids later went on to fill the Obama White House and uh, greatly harmed this country with their agenda of SSRIs and condoms. Uh, so if there are any cultural background questions about the types of people who were on trial and ended up selling out and then starting like a uh, mindfulness startup or something, as many of these people did who went on to be my neighbors, I will do my best to answer those questions as an expert witness. As far as the movie, uh, again, I saw I think about 10% of it. Uh, and I was not able to reconvene 
or call a quorum to my own viewing of it. Yeah. Can I just well, okay. say that I went into this with, uh, I mean, I also hate the 60s and the cultural turn was the worst thing to happen for class politics in America in in American history. But I just want to go through and uh, read a text I sent to Josh. Abby Hoffman, egomaniacal aspirant, celebrity, man-child, Jerry Rubin, narcissistic counterculture hack who soon denounced activism in face of her a personal introspection and therapy culture, becoming a stockbroker, real estate investor, multi-level marketing scammer before eventually cashing out in early, as an early Apple investor. Rennie Davis, triumphalist dork who later got into Eastern mysticism, became a venture capitalist. Dave Dellinger, old money who got really into Henry David Thoreau at Yale and then Oxford Seminary, where he trained to be a literally holier-than-thou pacifist before slumming it with hobos and then adventurism in Spain. Lee Weiner won Groucho Marx to appear at the trial and explain satire, then went on to work at the ADL and held process on behalf of, quote, Russian Jews suffering under the evil communist regime. Tom Hayden, Port Huron author and SDS bore, was married to Jane Fonda for 17 years, became a California assembly member and got cozy with the Clintons endorsing Hillary over Bernie in the primaries. John Freund's, however, a chill chemistry dude, um, uh, opposed to war uh, and pollution, and just uh, he actually got removed from his position because he was secretly working with other environmentalist chemists um, yeah. and saying, yeah, th- those things are poison, and they considered a conflict of interest. The weird chemistry dude that no one talked about, most reliable thing. Well, uh, th- you basically response? <clears throat> no, you, you can ba- say your response. You basically <laughs> described what's going to happen to Chapo. <laughs> yeah, by the way, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yes, I have been studying chemistry. That is correct. <laughs> All right, so here's, let's. Here's, may I respond? Oh yeah, no, please. Yeah, I, I, I've been, I've been the uh, the witness mentioned me, so I feel that. Uh, First of all, we are terrible with money, so that will not happen to us. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna I'm gonna Bobby. Yeah. I'm gonna Bobby I'm, seal Josh right now. But yeah, go ahead. I'm, mo- <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly with her. I always think about. It's the thing that keeps everybody honest, the awareness that you will eventually be dishonest. Um, Joe Strummer's great line, he who fucks nuns will later join the church. Yeah. And uh, I, I celebrate some of these people for what they did in the moment, not who they became. But I wrote back, yeah. I can't go with you on Abby. He ended his days as an effective environmental activist while hiding from the cops on a phony bus. Journey. Yeah, the, the environment is doing great. He did a great job. <laughs> yeah, it was just what, he was oh, fighting he for one area of the environment. Yeah, I got to grease up. Abby Hoffman was one of the only ones that didn't sell out or become fraudulent. But his yeah. theory that like uh, politics is actually um, uh, a press campaign has been very bad for the left. It's also been vindicated by the right, who are now doing. Yeah. I mean, the president is a right wing Abby Hoffman. To to. But I would say the press would be less hostile to a right-wing agenda than any left agenda that would try to co-opt it. Exactly. Really, and know. again, if the, if the press had any real power, um, well, Hillary Clinton would be president. The focus on press and PR rather than you know working-class institutions or what they call the cultural turn, because Abby Hoffman was really into Marcusa, mm-hmm. Brandeis boy, uh, like um, that is... That was a wrong turn. And he wasn't the only one that made it, certainly. Here's my question. Should 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 he have been aware of that at the time is the question. You no, it had to happen. But the idea of uh, thinking yeah. of him as like a, some sort of romantic hero, what he did is he discovered something that was new 
and and but the novelty of something doesn't necessarily mean uh, that that's the way forward. I mean, it's it was just a very to a man with a hammer. He should have been Lenny Bruce. Well, well, yeah. I, and I, I would say that it's it's part of the the tools that need to be used. I think that if there is going to be uh, a, a takedown of the system, it has to happen on all fronts. And one of those fronts is what Abby, Abby Hoffman was talking about. Like, you're going to have to confront the media for what it is. And it's just a fucking clown show. Okay, well let's yeah, let's uh, let's 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 dive into the film itself. I mean, in case you haven't figured it out yet, uh, what the trial of Chicago Seven was. This was the uh, basically a trial that resulted following the the riot that took place during the 1968 Chicago Democratic National Convention, in which sort of the SDS and the Yippies and like various sort of left and countercultural groups went to Chicago to protest the uh, nomination of pro Vietnam War uh, candidate Hubert Humphrey. And like the, th- the thing about this movie that you have to keep in mind, at least as, as far as like Sorkin's presentation of it, is the whole thing <clears throat> is just sort of this uh, it's, it's a presentation of like historical fantasia that is just all about like winking at you, the audience, to be about like this is actually about the present moment. And it's about Aaron Sorkin's like yeah. like personal uh, beliefs about the present moment as filtered through the lens of like real historical events. This was like the Chicago Seven, originally Chicago Eight. We'll get into the reasons why for that happened. They were they were charged by Nixon's Justice Department and his Attorney General John Mitchell for this like obscure law that involved crossing state lines for the purpose of inciting violence and they were put on this right. like big it, this was like the the, the first like a, like an oj trial equivalent for like the 1970s in america this was like this huge spectacular mega trial with like legal and actual celebrities involved in it and it lasted the defendants like, were innocent just like the OJ. <laughs> and it lasted something like 186 days so this was like like this this big mega trial that uh that you know like it brings together like all these elements of you know protest police brutality uh the state freedom of speech into this one like sort of mega mega judicial event and you know he fills it out i mean he fills out his cast with a number of really great actors and performances who like you know bring this tapestry of historical events but through this this veil of sorkin's sort of semi-aware self image and, and ideology of how he presents himself and i think it is the real the real meaning of this movie is in between in Sorkin's idea of the split between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman. And I think it is right. very clear that Sorkin identifies himself and his point of view with Hayden rather than Abby Hoffman. And we even remember back from the newsroom, Jeff Newsroom harangues, he has this whole dialogue with Sam Waterston about how like, oh, like, you know, once the movement got hijacked by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, you know, no one took progressive politics seriously for the next you know, till today. And like, that's the problem that same speech. That same speech See, is in the movie. Yeah. He, 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 he doubles that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, um, in remembering this, by the way, this is a great book to have on the, uh, back of your toilet. Cause you can just flip to a section and, and yeah. read to it. Um, I'm a girl, so I don't read on the toilet, but I understand the genre. Um, so this is, right? Yeah. So this is just the trial of the Chicago 7 official transcript. And I bought uh, the new edition, which has a forward by none other than Aaron Sorkin. Love him. I'm just going to read a few parts. It's not very long for once he's brief. On a Sunday morning in 2006, I was asked to come to Steven Spielberg's house. Already cool. Just Um, name uh, drop. (laughs) By the way, politics... I know Steven Spielberg. That's the first sentence. 
Second sentence. Spielberg is an exceedingly affable man who does his best to make those around him feel comfortable and worth his time. It doesn't work on me. I believe him to be a genius and the greatest filmmaker who's ever lived. McDonald's is my favorite hamburger. Jesus it's, it's the greatest Christ. meal that has ever been prepared. Oh, um, God. So uh, he's asked him to make a, trial, uh, a movie about Trial of Chicago 7. He told he said I told him I thought that was a great idea and, and there hadn't been a that there hadn't been a film about the Chicago 7 which is not true and that I'd love to write it. I didn't tell him that the first thing I'd need to do was find out who the Chicago 7 were and what the hell he was talking about. Jesus Christ, why would you put this in print? I know. <laughs> yeah, why would you yeah. Yeah. No, I'll uh, tell you why. You want to know why? There's why? only one reason to do it. Because you pulled it the fuck off and no one can take that away from you. Yeah. You made a film so yeah, fucking yeah. brilliant, it's only more amazing that you didn't know who they were. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't even need to know things. That's how good a yeah, writer I am. That is how So he sort of talks about the bloody clash with the police. The right occurred a few hundred ways for Hubert Humphrey being nominated. And then he says by the way, there's just like factual errors in his foreword, which is only a few paragraphs. Then he says Hubert would go on to lose a very close election to Richard Nixon. Hubert <laughs> got creamed. Crushed. Didn't. Now, the popular vote, Humphrey did, uh, was very close. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, he damn near won. But yeah, he got the electoral, the electoral vote was 301 to 191. Yeah. That's a pretty big detail because it proves that <clears throat> there's no reflection of the popular will in these institutions. To just say that, like, oh, it was really close. Yeah, like the popular vote, the one that doesn't count. Like, I mean, the electoral college has made that not even look close. So he turned to the draft, uh, and this was a long time ago, and it just sort of sat on a shelf for a while. And he said, well, now we need to bring it back because the movie wouldn't be about riots of 1968 or the trial of 1969. It would be about right now. Now it was 2018 and time for another election. This one would be a referendum on an incumbent president who often rhapsodized at campaign rallies about the old days when they'd take it protesters out here on the stretcher and he'd like to punch them right in the mouth, beat the crap out of him. So his whole thing is that like this is this moment is exactly like uh, like 1968, which is just not, not accurate. True. Not not at all. It's just not accurate. Yeah. Um, that, that, but he's those like, were, people that were was, also mad. It was all that was all about the draft. It was all about the war. I mean, there were other things going on, but it was all about the war. Yeah, it's about American well, Empire. Anyway, just the weirdest thing that even he would be like that he would be writing this forward. There are members of the Chicago Seven that are like still alive that could have written the forward. By the way, yeah, I I follow Rennie Davis on uh, Facebook, and he he wrote some interesting stuff about the film, which we can get into later if you want. Um, He's a character played by uh, Virgil Texas. In the- <laughs> right, right. Hair and everything. I just love the well, I just love the fact that the 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 big Hollywood director is like we need our preeminent liberal mind in Hollywood to get on this script, and they bring him in. He's like, "Fuck, I don't know what that is." Like that just sums up liberals <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. And well, even Spielberg. Spielberg knew nothing about them. It was just not yeah. his world at all. How did he not know but he that? He is the greatest was, filmmaker who has ever lived. Spielberg, Spielberg. let me guess what he was doing at the time. 
Uh, he was learning uh, sacrifice rituals for Moloch. He was <laughs> he was like a busboy at Bohemian Grove. It was when they were inducting. It was like the first third of Goodfellas, but for getting into the New World Order. <laughs> <laughs> well, as uh, as Dave points out, like the the film does open like the very first thing you see is uh, like news footage of Lyndon Johnson uh, escalating the, the the number of American troops he's going to send to Vietnam and raising the number of like the draft quota. So it very much begins with this, this threat of the draft, and then it gives you this kind of snappy sort of news footage historical montage of Martin Luther King. It literally King. opens up with the baby boomer montage. Insert yeah. boomer montage here. It just goes from... By the way, it's also almost the same montage. There's a terrific film. I was going to say, if your listeners want to actually learn something about the trial of Chicago 7, uh, there's a terrific movie called Chicago 10 um, from a director named Brett Morgan a few years ago where it's uh, footage from the era and then animated recreations of scenes... And oh, yeah, I saw that. That was pretty well, good. Yeah. Sorkin uses so much of the structure of that doc for his film. It's astonishing. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the Chicago 10 refers to a Chicago 10 out of 10, which is a uh, <laughs> six, to four, six to four out of 10. Really any other major urban center. So, yeah, it begins with this, yeah, the boomer montage of, like, you know, the draft and Martin Luther King coming out against the war, then him getting assassinated in Memphis, then Robert F. Kennedy uh, giving his sort of, like, a plea for uh, peace following the King assassination, and then the Ambassador Hotel, boom, like, he's assassinated. This all comes at a pretty clip, pretty fast clip. It's got some funky music. And then we're introduced to the, the, various, the various actors who are all sort of coalescing around the Democratic Convention to come to protest it. You've got uh, Tom Hayden and the and Virgil, Texas with SDS. You've got Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. I should say, I should mention here, Tom Hayden is played by that guy, Eddie Redman. Um, don't know why I got to oh, yeah. him in every when, movie. When will we as a country admit that we don't actually like Eddie Redman? Every, every two years, we find a Brit with a weird face and pretend yep. that we like him. It's horrible. <laughs> we I got to stop it. They're I gotta not say, sending their best. No, I gotta they're say, not. I got to say, though, I did not find him all that objectionable in this movie, but just it's just Eddie Redman. He's he's everywhere now. Then you got the Yippies. Uh, Abby Hoffman, of course, played by Sasha Baron Cohen. You know, one of our one of our generation's greatest tricksters and pranksters. And then you've got uh, Jeremy Strong from Succession as Jerry Rubin. Very and I got to say, Jeremy Strong, they are sending their best from the UK. Yeah. I like Jerry, Jeremy Strong very much, although his portrayal of Jerry Rubin in this movie is... He's sort of like a, an oafish sort of stoner who's just a little bit. He's 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 basically the comic relief, and like Hoffman is sort of the. He's funny, but he's the smarter, more serious one. And and Jerry Rubin is sort of like the the, the caricature of like the hippie who's like you know got he's a got lid man. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, man. yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave's not here, man. man. Not here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, is, like that. it is. And you've got like uh, completely fab- fabricated, but I gotta say. They have a fun. They have a fun chemistry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no yeah. Sasha Cohen and Jeremy Strong are very good together. Like I said, like I liked a lot of the performance in this movie. You've got John Carroll Lynch, the Zodiac himself, yes. playing, playing fat yeah. pacifist oh, Dave Dellinger. King. You know, King. I was so happy when I saw him. And then you've got uh, Yahya Abdul Mateen playing Bobby Seale and uh, the Black Panthers, and they're all just like we all got to go to Chicago. Uh, then the movie jumps ahead until like you know Nixon's been elected, and then like you know the new the new regime is in town. 
around and we get to see um, Nixon's Justice Department. And you've got um, uh, John Doman playing uh, John Mitchell. John Doman is an actor renowned for playing mega assholes like uh, what's his name? Um, Rawls from The Wire. He's just sort of like a that guy is like the, the standard go to casting for sort of like institutionalized mega prick. You know, some guy yeah, who's just yeah, sitting it, behind a desk who's just like, these motherfuckers, I can't wait to ram the dick of the state into these fucking berries. Yeah, he took the job of, remember the guy who played the dean in Scent of a Woman? That used to be that guy, and then he aged out of it. I'm going to get this guy in my biopic. He will play the head of the Trojan Corporation. <laughs> my major a, antagonist. You know what he has? He has um, Bloomberg uh, energy, where yeah. he's very good at being like, I'm going to say something specifically to make you uncomfortable because I'm a fucking shit. He's really so, good at it. So we got we got we got John Mitchell brings in like this sort of the the, the young hotshot prosecutor from like the Illinois State Attorney General's office is like you're the guy here. He's 33 years old and he's like you're going to you're going to prosecute like this like this is our this is our fucking our showcase trial for like restoring law and order and manners and values and decency on like an American culture that had gone through the sixties. And uh, the prosecutor, Richard Schultz is played by Joseph Gordon Levitt. And, and Sorkin's portrayal of this guy is right off the bat. Oh my God. This might be the worst thing in the whole film. Yeah. Yeah, It may be like so noxious. It's it's so vile. Reading the transcript because you're like, that guy was a, Bastard. Yeah, I they, mean, first the, of all, jur- journalists at the at the time described him as oppressive rage. He was yeah. constant anger and rage. Yeah, and and, and, and me- like wild accusations that never made it into. Every character is totally wrong in this. Yeah. And by the way, also factually, um, uh, Rennie Davis wrote about that. He said um, he's talking about Tom Foran, the other guy uh, who was going to wanted to run for the governor of Illinois, and. Um, he said, apparently, uh, the cross examination in the, one of the cross examinations he ran in the trial basically ended his career in politics. He was an absolute prick. Um, in the movie, his character, it's, that's the one played by the other guy. <laughs> I remember. And he writes, in the movie, his fictional character movie barely existed. I have no idea why, since he was the lead prosecutor and most colorful by far. The movie makes you believe Richard Schultz was the government's star. I have no idea why. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, just 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 on its face, the guy's thirty three years old and being handpicked to prosecute like the marquee trial of the Nixon administration. Yeah, I'm gonna mm-hmm. bet chances are he's not a very fucking nice, good guy dedicated to like. Yeah. Just, <laughs> no, like, no, like he got like, that job because he's the best. <laughs> damn it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they uh, just, they, the, even though Mitchell is this disgusting uh, political hack, he can't deny talent when he sees it. And here's the thing. Here's the here's the thing with Sorkin's portrayal of, of of Schultz, who's like who's who's you know I mean he makes John Mitchell to be like a complete prick and like a vindictive psycho who's really only prosecuting this case because Ramsey Clark, Lyndon Johnson's attorney general, waited to like an hour before he swore, was sworn in to resign as attorney general, and he yeah. like he has a huge chip on his shoulder about that about like the the breach of decorum and disrespect to me, and he's like I'm I'm gonna ram I'm gonna take that I'm gonna take these like sort of uh, these golden boys these college kids these subversives and i'm just going to ram it down their throat to fuck with them and also the outgoing ag who, who declined to prosecute them and here's the thing with the richard schultz character is like he he's willing to make nixon's justice department look like the absolute fucking monsters that they were but the guy who's like been given the authority to prosecute this case has to be held out 
as sort of like, yeah, he's on the other side, but is basically like a decent, good person who just wants to uphold the law. Because in Sorkin's world, there can never just be like two sides if you're dealing with American institutions. There can never just be like, it's a trial, so obviously like there has to be two sides. But like the prosecutor in this case, he has to hold out, he has to create like a, a little paddock for him to exist as like, okay, like I'm playing my part here and like maybe I don't agree with their politics, but like I, I still stand for the law and am basically a good, decent person. And the one thing we can agree on, and this is a spoiler, it's this is the climax of the movie. We all want to hug and kiss the troops. Okay, that's right. I, I, yeah. I want to I get to that. Uh, I want to build that. up to that moment. The Schultz thing is also, Sorkin found a moment in the real story that he wanted to go back and reconstruct who Schultz was to make it make sense to him. And that's when Ruben and Hoffman bump into each other, bump into Schultz in the park. And that actually happened. And, and Schultz actually did say, I might've been on your side back in college because in Sorkin's mind, that can't happen. If people hate each other, if they're having a conversation and one guy says, I used to be you, in his mind, he can't comprehend how a guy saying, I used to be fucking idiots like you fucking pieces of shit, and I've come around and I know how things are now. His mind can't handle that. Those guys in the park bumped into each other and they fucking hated each other and they walked away hating each other and nothing happened yeah. other than that. But in his mind, he, he reconstructed the whole thing the whole entire character to fit into that moment. Wild. And so like, the, I think, I think the movie is, is smart enough to just jump immediately into the trial and tell the story of like what happened during the convention, largely in sort of flashbacks that come out through testimony. I think it's like, it's a pretty good way to frame it and like keep the action going along. So there's not some big build up to what like most of the movie is going to be, which is in a courtroom. So, I mean, and then we get uh, the, the lawyers for the defense is uh, Bill Kunstler, played by Mark Rylance, another and a, a Steven Spielberg favorite as of as a recent note, um, but a, a very good actor, and he's sort of the uh, the crusading you know First Amendment advocate uh, who's going to be defending the Chicago Seven, and then right off the bat, there's this this whole issue about Bobby Seale. Because Bobby Seale had his own attorney who was going to represent him in this trial who had explosive gallbladder surgery like the day before or like prior to the trial and the judge did not issue a like a stay. He did not delay the trial. He went forward without it without one of the main defendants being able to have counsel and then he wouldn't let him represent himself. So it was this whole fucking like already off the bat like and the judge I got to say Judge Hoffman not Abby Hoffman played by Frank Langella is maybe the best character in the movie. I love Frank Langella and Apparently, this movie soft sells what a prick this guy was, too. It does. Which is saying yes. a lot because he comes across like a complete asshole in the movie and basically senile. Like, he, With, like, he doesn't know anyone's name. He doesn't know what's going on. He's yeah. like this ordinary sundowning asshole. Well, I, I, the, just the thing about the judges, he also, after Seal's uh, a, attorney got had gallbladder issues, he then had four pretrial... Uh, attorneys who worked on the case and were now gone arrested one arrested in California and brought back in chains. Another flew in and was arrested at the airport because he was demanding that they be seals attorney and none of them had been hired to be seals attorney. So he, he was a fucking monster from day one on levels that are, are just extraordinary. And the appellate court reversed that decision within two weeks and had all the attorneys out of jail. Yeah. So there's, there's too much shit in this 
maybe to have made a movie. I really think that that's part of yes. it. It's like, you don't even get like what a bastard you don't get. I mean, like you get when, you know, they, they gag Bobby seal, but like some of the stuff too, that is just, I think really essential. Like Charles Gary is a major plot. Like he defended, like he was a major civil rights attorney yeah. and a lot of these civil rights attorneys had their own kind of like that was a whole other kind of movement um were these like landmark civil rights cases and he would have been like worth mentioning because he he was the he was the black panthers lawyer um <laughs> but like this is a really interesting person he defended the people's temple like yeah. he defended jonestown like all of these people are so interesting and they're so flattened because you just can't fit all of this shit in a movie. Well, yeah, and you can't you can't justify this doing it as a film because I really think you have to you have to you have to know each character and you have to build up to each character no before you get to the trial. And there's no yeah, there's so at you least just skip seven it. characters. We know that from the beginning. <laughs> so I mean, like whether it's the whether it's the issue that Bobby Seale was being put on trial without legal representation and like there's this weird thing where uh frank langella as judge hoffman keeps telling uh Kunstler, like why don't you just represent him you're sitting next to him and he's like because i'm not his attorney he hasn't hired me and he's just like like i said in this sundowning like angry old man way is just keeps being frustrated why 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 won't like the other attorneys just take on bobby seal and they're like well because he hasn't hired us this is well and we can't represent can't represent him and also because they, the, the Panthers already had a very dedicated specialist lawyer, so Bobby Seale didn't, didn't want him. And I think the judge, I think Judge Hoffman really wanted to be able to associate the entirety of the left with, um, like, the militia wing of, of certain Black Panther chapters. Like, he needed to tack them together. He needed yeah. to put them all in one group. Yeah, there, there's a moment in the movie where Bobby Seale says, like, I was in Chicago for four hours. I've never met any of these people. I was never in the same yeah. room with them. And, like, totally I'm true. only here because the prosecution wants the image of, like, this scary black man to, like, in the minds so of America. So Sorkin, and, by and the, the way. Yeah. yeah. One more thing here. One more thing here about sort of mood and ambiance. Like, it's true that Panthers showed up into the courtroom. The Panthers didn't always look like they were dressed for a photo op. <laughs> pictures. Angela Davis wore, like, brightly colored mini skirts to her trial. Yeah. They weren't all dressed. They weren't dressed like fucking beatnik militia members 24-7. They wore normal clothes. It wasn't constant berets and black shades indoors, but he stacked, I think, the numbers of Black Panthers that were actually in the, in the um, what do they call it, the theater, the audience? The gallery. Yeah. It was hard to get in, gallery. actually. People waited all night yeah. to get in. It wasn't an easy... Yeah, it was, it was like a new apple. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> also, to your point, they, they didn't... T- uh, Fred Hampton was there, but he never talked to Bobby Seale. They used sign language. They used sign language, yeah. To communicate. They, they Anyway, that just everything is so mischaracterized over and over again. Well, there's a, there's a fun there's a fun moment with the Black Panthers that I love because it's so Sorkin. Uh, we do this thing on our show every week, the misogyny rundown. <laughs> that, um, Sorkin loves nothing he loves more than if you need to explain something to the audience, he has a character explain it to a woman who would naturally already know this stuff. And there's a scene with Bobby Seale explaining the basics of the black Panthers 
to a female Black Panther at Black Panther headquarters that is just fucking jaw dropping. It's a walk and talk. It's a Black Panther and walk it is, and talk. It is a Black and Panther walk and talk where he, he and I hate this term, but Sorkin, Sorkin owns it. I really hate this fucking term, but when you watch Sorkin, you have to own He mansplains to her. It's fucking yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, as the film and the trial progresses, like, the defendants, their attorneys, they just, they, they keep racking up these contempt charges as they keep running, you know, smashing their head into the obvious show trial that's being run, that they're being forced to participate in. I mean, they strike think, a number of sympathetic jurors. I, th- I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a bad framing because I don't think they were smashing their head into it. They were, they were celebrating its stupidity. Like, they were... Everything they did was to point out how it was a political trial and how fucking stupid the trial was. And they they were all like, we're going to jail anyway, so let's make this the farce that it is. And that's right. something that's and big, really I, missed. I would say that that's true, but I think one of the reasons they felt so safe is because at least uh, Hoffman was pretty secure that I think he's like, no, this will get turned over in appeal. So yeah, they like, all thought that. Look, if we can, if we can get out... Like, fuck it. Let's just make this uh, uh, the circus that it is. And that's the other weird thing is that, like, they're so much cooler and funnier and more likable in the transcripts than they are in this movie. Abby Hoffman is not a self-important, like, dickhead like he was on the stand in the movie. He's, like, funny and charming and really charismatic. And, you know, uh, not all of them even testified. Uh, Dellinger wasn't just, like, this gentle giant he was cool he was badass yeah Hunstler, by the way was not like a settle down fellas he was oh, he fucking was, wild yeah. he was a yeah. wild man yeah. all of this stuff was all of the bad people are not portrayed bad guys are not portrayed as bad as they actually were and all of the defendants and their lawyers are not as portrayed as like cool and likable as they actually were in that moment. I, I read an entire chapter in a book that was just about laughter in the courtroom because there was so much fucking funny it shit going funny. on. It was Abby endless. Hoffman was fucking funny. And you know what? It's same thing too with Tom Hayden. Tom Hayden wasn't the square they made him out to be. Everyone was a thousand times more complicated and, and, and cool. In, 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 like I said, like the, the, the hinge of this movie in, in Sorkin's mind is this split between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, which he reads into like all sort of interleft progressive democratic debates of the current moment. And he clearly thinks Hayden was the correct one because Hayden was like, had a, got a haircut. He wore a suit and tie. He respected the institution of the court and the police and the American military. And he didn't want everything to just be like a circus, uh, to show the absurdity of, uh, the trial itself. Like in, in, through, through Sorkin's words, Hayden is portrayed as a guy who was like, Hey, we're on trial for our lives here. This is serious and we need to act like it even though like the, every, everything around them in the legal proceedings is being shown to be an absolute farce. Uh, there is, I, I did like this, this one moment where they start getting into like, what actually happened during the, uh, uh, during the riots that happened in, in Chicago. And there's this whole thing where uh, these, these, uh, the, these cops catch Tom Hayden letting the airs out of an undercover cop car. And the reason he did that is because like, Rennie Davis's in-laws would get mad at him if they knew undercover cops were trailing him. And he was like, it all right, is- you... 
you, <laughs> he's like his uh, girlfriend's the, <laughs> parents, not even in laws. Oh yeah, yeah his, his girlfriend's parents would get mad at him. So then he, he gets arrested. To touch a boob. He gets arrested, and that kicks off this whole like confrontation with the police and the first like major incident of of violence. Sorry, the real Rennie Davis wants everyone to know that never fucking happened. <laughs> the situation with his girlfriend is bullshit. Yeah, yeah they really make <laughs> him look to be like, hey, the revolution can wait, guys. I got to get home in time for dinner. It's seven o'clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they they made the squares look actually like way more square, and they made the counterculture figures look like insane idiots. Like yeah, like like Rennie Davis, like and like and we'll we'll get to this like the the real the real climax of this movie that made me want to blow my brains out. Oh like, my like, god, Rennie Davis. This is like the Chekhov's gun of the movie. Is that Rennie Davis? Like as soon as the trial starts, keeps a journal where he records the name of every American soldier who's been killed in Vietnam since the trial started. And like you know, like th- this is like you know that gun is going to go off in the third act, and Sorkin uses it in the most just a repellent way imaginable. But like the real Rennie Davis, like traveled to North Vietnam prior to this yeah. trial like he was a he was a pretty serious guy and crucially during the trial was recording the names not just of the americans who were killed in vietnam but every vietnamese person as well mm-hmm. and yes. that is a huge element that, that where sorkin just cannot abide or like he cannot metabolize that into his worldview because like there are so many moments during the during this movie where it just like it comes to a screeching halt and sorkin just wants to remind you this is what this all is really about i.e. the Americans who are suffering because of the Vietnam War. Another thing about Rennie Davis is uh, he's the one who got really into Eastern mysticism and one of the ones who became a venture capitalist. But that's not so much uh, an indictment of like left politics were inherently doomed to go that way uh, or there was an inherent reaction. He, his dad was uh, chief of staff uh, for the Council of Economic Advisors to Harry Truman. Like wow. <laughs> he was just going back home. <laughs> like that's right. yeah. I don't. I don't no, think but- that. I, I think the thing about uh, the Vietnamese names and the Viet Cong names on that list is, I don't think that he believes that a likable character can list the Care names of the Vietnamese, v- Vietnamese. Like he, he literally in his mind doesn't see how those two things are possible, and he thinks that if you write a character that way that they're they're villains and he can't comprehend that someone just against war and life in general is a good person that's not that's 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 sorkin's imperial politics the crime isn't the empire the the misuse of resources isn't the forever war or at the in this case the specific massive war it's that you have this great beautiful institution that all of america is perfect and especially the military and the worst thing you can do is misuse it and not take the lives of the military, not not have them die with some plan. If it's with a plan, if it's for the expansion of our institutions and our global influence, it's fine. But incompetence and uh, someone who you know came to conduct the war not coming up through meritocracy, that's the greatest crime, not just the concept of war. He's not against that at all. And he loves the troops like nobody's business because there's that – remember he throws in that line. Can you imagine the real William Kunstler? Dave Dillinger was a, was a conscientious objector in World War II, went to jail for it. And it comes up in a bit of dialogue and Kunstler goes, even I want to punch you in the face for that. It's like that's fucking insane. That's just Sorkin talking. We have a clip we play in the show all the time from this interview where Aaron Sorkin genuinely believes that until Donald Trump became president – when the American troops came into other countries, people went, thank God, here come the Americans. 
that is that this is what I've said about Sorkin is that you can't analogize analogize him with other screenwriters or directors or anything from this era. Aaron Sorkin is like a pro imperial Victorian playwright. Like uh-huh. he, he is one of the most pro imperial worldviews out of uh Almost anyone in Hollywood is fucking uh-huh. filled with these people, but Sorkin may be the most explicit in it. Well, he's so effective at it, and this gets to Josh's point because I don't think he's even aware of it. And if he were more conscious of like his propagandizing, it wouldn't be such good propaganda. And that's what's sort of like his genius. And I, I want to talk about actually another really funny, and I would say probably one of the most evil elements of this movie, uh, next to the portrayal of Richard Schultz, is the introduction of this FBI honeypot undercover oh, agent. Oh, God. Who's just this babe who like buys a drink for Jerry Rubin in a bar and uses a pickup line that a Sorkin woman has also mouthed on the West Wing. It's about why it's is a terrible wh- joke. It's a terrible joke about how you know why is one egg enough in France because one egg is uh, enough or whatever. Uh, and then Jerry Rubin is like, "Wow, lady, you're blowing my mind with this crazy <laughs> shit, man." Just assume that someone Can remembers I... high school French or even <laughs> took it for that matter. Can I give you? Can you give me a groovy hand job? <laughs> this is how most relationships. This is how most relationships started in the sixties. So uh, a man was brutally incapacitated by his diet of LSD and stems, and then uh, any <laughs> any any woman would tell a nine year old's joke, and he would just come in his pants. You know? <laughs> she's just reading, she's reading, reading like uh, like uh, Bazooka Joe rappers to him, and he's just getting a giant boner. Whoa, I've never felt like I've felt with you, with anyone. It's like you make me laugh. Let's have four kids named Xander. I hope they work in the Obama White House one day. They're going to attend University of Chicago lab schools in Hyde Park, where we're going to live. <laughs> so I want to argue for Sorkin. He has evolved, because if he had written this character, if this was an episode of The West Wing, she'd be an unrepentant monster. She'd be yes. poor, you know, all this stuff. But in this one, she is presented kind of the same way Joseph Gordon-Levitt is, because at the end, it's like you realize she really does. She's got a heart of gold. She's doing yes. her job. Yeah. She's kind of rooting for these guys, but she's got to do what she's got to do. So like that, yeah, makes, yeah. that makes me realize I can't wait for the next Sorkin movie, which is the Jonathan Pollard trial. <laughs> <laughs> well okay so it's like she, she she's this babe who uh goes undercover and like insinuates herself into the leadership of uh like these protests and then testifies against them at their trial and is made out to be like a sympathetic character and then even after like he knows that you know he's been you know honey potted by this fucking undercover fed jerry rubin's like says to richard saltz when they meet in the park he's like how could you do that to me man we have had a thing we had a connection and she still ask about me man and not like hey i hope she yeah. fucking dies in the line of duty <laughs> they really they really made him a punchline and like yeah. like you know whatever jerry rubin became a bastard but he was a smart person like he was <laughs> yeah i mean i will say one of the major issues like abby hoffman later in life um developed he, he had basically like really crippling manic depression and that but there was no like sort of uh record of it in his early life so it's possible that it's idiopathic late onset but that's pretty rare odds are it was maybe well he got hit in the head no he ran into nightsticks over and over again even after he was unconscious so maybe it was cte (laughs) but also like it's true 
you'll never find a bigger advocate for acid than me, but when they first got it, they didn't know you could take too much. <sighs> yeah. um, it's, it's not an everyday so, drug. I mean, it's not like cocaine or heroin or marijuana. Uh, honestly, but the first time I took it, I didn't know you could take too much either. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, he, but here's their, an important their, point, their though. <clears throat> portrayal of, 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 of them being on drugs is like not even negative in the correct way. It's Cheech and Chong. What I also want to say about, about Jeremy Strong's... Did you guys read that thing that came out a couple weeks ago about this film where Jeremy Strong talks... Or Aaron Sorkin talks about Jeremy Strong's method. And I was expecting this amazing performance out of him, especially after reading this. He goes, Jeremy begged me to spray him with real tear gas. <laughs> <laughs> I need to know if it really hurts. Uh, Turns out it does. They, they deserve <laughs> each other. They deserve yeah. each other. However, but, uh, still very funny guy. But as to as to the FBI honeypot lady, um, she she is a babe, and like she totally seduces Jerry Rubin, and she's like right there with them during the police riot when it happens. But here is like one of the few actually important lessons for the contemporary politics: if you are a leftist or socialist man of any kind, and an attractive woman is showing any interest in you whatsoever, <laughs> she is one thousand percent an undercover agent. So do not trust it. Do not respond to her. Do not go on a date with her. Do not tell her anything. If a woman is showing you any attention, she is a fed 1,000%. Write it in blood. Yeah, as I, if all of these guys weren't like eyeball deep in pussy. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, Hoffman got, yeah. uh, Hoffman, that's one thing reading about Hoffman and that guy got laid more than anybody. But and look, yeah. Hoffman, Hoffman looked, like dog shit. <laughs> he was I, I, I'm into I'm into it, but you know I like a, a unibrow and a hairy, hairy yeah. back. So isn't the worst thing about that FBI agent is how she's always in the shit right in the protests and keeps saying let's not do that, people will get hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's the, yeah. she's the one Asian provocateur who wants everyone to simmer down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah her job. exactly. She keeps forgetting what she's supposed thing. to do at her job. So what is she doing? Well, then? Uh, because yeah. they want because Aaron Sorkin he wants to. T- tailor the story of this particular abuse of power as narrowly as possible. He wants it to be about the specific actions of bad political figures, John Mitchell acting out of personal peak, not because of a coordinated government wide persecution of the left in this country that it went from like Operation fucking from uh, like uh, COINTELPRO and fucking Pro- Operation Chaos and shit. I mean, we know what they were doing. But no, it wasn't that. It was just these bad people who were voted in uh, are doing are are using our wonderful institutions uh, 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 for ill intent. But the people within those institutions, they actually are servants of the people broadly and don't and just just do their jobs, which means that they can never be corrupted fully, which means that the system itself is never to be questioned. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Sorkin uh, thinks that I was just doing my job is actually the best defense for not. <laughs> yes. I, 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 I would the FBI character. I love her. Like I obviously didn't make. Her, but the idea, <laughs> Felix, right? She is your ideal woman, though. She really is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah but she's a waspy um, blonde who's like yeah. also a federal. No, agent. no. I, I, I saw a clip of this, and I've already. Um, I figured out ways to impress her, uh, <laughs> similar to how other men like me impress Jodie Foster. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, no, she. Um, that idea for a character that is the most comedically ripe thing Aaron Sorkin has ever come up with a deep state Amelia Bedelia who like <laughs> who like doesn't know what an agent provocateur does 
And like there should be a sequel of just her where she's she's taking part in Gladio and the Years of Lead, but she's just like she's publishing like centrist uh, centrist opinion pieces in Italian newspapers about how the communists and and everyone need to come together to tamper down the budget deficit, and she thinks she's doing Gladio. Everyone has to clean up her mess, but she's yeah. the best at she's the best at like uh, I don't know uh, whatever she does in the movie, fucking some guy. <laughs> uh, Felix, Felix, I, I wish I, I mean if you had gotten to this point in the movie, there there isn't there is one segment that I did found very humorous and I thought was right up your alley. It's the sequence where they show all of the undercover informants who were like in, infiltrated these protests and were like sort of ingratiating themselves and like they're all these guys like this montage of them in their hippie costume and then on the stand and it's so funny because they are all like Polak Chicago cops and they're like yeah. this guy approaches you and he's like hey man. I can get you grass and lewds. And they're like, cool, what's your name? And he's like, uh, uh, Starchild Presbaluski Bowska. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, I would, uh, uh, I, that, uh, oh man, I would like just a guy with like a haircut, like a tin of spam coming up, <laughs> being like, hey, hey, I got a really gro- I got a really groovy babe down there. <laughs> Do you want to you want to come to my jam session? I played a tuba. Matt, Matt, did you pick up on the uh, the one uh, North Country Midwestern accent that they jammed in there? The court reporter. Uh uh-uh. She had what? she only had a few lines, but there was this moment where she's like, "Bobby Seal, John Franz, Franz, Franz." I I. Sweetheart, I don't know how you say that. So, I mean, as the trial goes on, like, here, here's another thing that, that Sirkin underplays, and that is the, the treatment of Bobby Seale and his famous gagging by Judge Hoffman. Yeah. In reality, that went on for three days of the, of the court proceedings. He was fully shackled and gagged in courtroom for three days. And in the movie, he's gagged, and then immediately, it, like, he is declared a mistrial and separated from the Chicago 7. But like, there's just one moment. But like, there was three full days of like, you know, courtroom sketch artists drawing him, fucking shackled and gagged as he is denied any representation in this trial whatsoever. So like, at, at that point, like, you know, they like he he is sort of neatly severed. Um, after Judge Hoffman is just like, in all my years, I've never been declared to be discriminating against an African American. And then Kunstler is just like, consider me the first. And then, uh, like his co-counsel Felix, who is played by uh, Chuck Rhodes's friend Ira from, on Billions, he shows up there, and he's just like, "I second that, Your Honor. We have two. I have a motion and a motion to sponsor that the judge is a racist." So that happens, and then also, like prior to that, wait, 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 wait. hang on. Okay. No, no, this is this is this is this is where my head popped off the shoulders because they do something, and this goes to everything about Sorkin, why he's stupid and not intentional. Do you remember in the film, Bobby Seale? is bereft. He's devastated because they've just found out that his good friend, Fred Hampton has been assassinated. Yeah. That happened three months after Bobby seal was chained in the courtroom. Yeah. He conflates the events. And in, in, in Sorkin's mind, what he's doing is he's giving the scene more emotional power. So you're like, you're already completely on Bobby Seale's side. And then when, you know, when he's, he's, he's devastated by the loss of his friend and then this evil judge chains him up and you're like, Oh, what a bastard. But what it ends up coming across as is that Bobby Seale's behavior is somehow more extreme than it's been up till now because he's so devastated by the death of his friend. And he ends up undercutting Bobby Seale. He ends up undercutting the argument that the judge is just a prick. 
And it just, it, it just, it's so fucking awful. Cause it's like, I think it's uh, August that he gets chained up or no, it's October that he gets chained up and bottom uh, Fred Hampton's killed in December. And he just uses this to lie about everything that fucking happens on that day. Well, he has to make his objections, uh, you know, uh, sympathetic. That's only, so he's only allowed to be mad if it's because he's grieving. Right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and, and if anything, you, he can't be this angry at the system. He can't be this angry at the court. It's got to be because he's exactly. Upset that and like by fucking with the chronology, he like he he gives you what he <laughs> thinks is like a very cinematic moment where Bobby Seale stands up and he's like, Fred Hampton was assassinated last night. You asked the coroner about like the first shot being fired into his shoulder. He couldn't even lifted a gun. And then they're like, an order, order, gag you. But like, if anything, like he's what he's doing there is undercutting the actual like how evil and grotesque just, the, you know, yeah. for lack of a word, the banality of this proceeding is where like how easily yes. and over like relatively nothing that this guy could be literally gagged in a court of law. He's yeah. also yeah. undercutting the assassination of Fred Hampton, who was I drugged too, by probably yeah. the woman he was sleeping with or his friend. One or the other, we don't know, but he was fucking drugged and then, and then killed by Chicago police using the information from the FBI. It's a government assassination. He undercuts two things at once because he's a fucking shit writer. <laughs> and you know what? Even if you were like, if you didn't know how to tell that story, don't show it. Like yeah. if you if you're like, I'm not going to infer exactly what happened to Fred Hampton. You know what? Don't show it. How about don't include it at all? Because it didn't happen until after Bobby Seale was out of the trial. Yeah, you could very easily make that film without Fred Hampton being in it, too. It's not, yeah, it's, but he wanted to get all the all the sort of like 60s all stars in there, you know, but he didn't. The, the we'll get to that, but he didn't. Yeah, he yeah, could've, yeah. could have had Joan Baez. All right, so, yeah, okay, there's gonna be Joan Baez, Groucho yeah, Marx. Uh, OK, so Country Joe Fish. It was uh, great because he just kept saying, yes, my name is Country. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, OK, there's another big thing where. Uh, the Ramsey Clark issue comes back with a vengeance. And then like, like Kunstler's like big, like aha moment is when he realizes that like, oh my God, the outgoing attorney general maybe has some relevant testimony as to this case. And then he, he hello, uh, he hello Mueller, right? This is Mueller, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's exactly. always doing and then, like, and, and, yeah. you know, like, and the fact that Sorkin makes like, uh, like the lion of like the LBJ administration, like a big savior in this movie is just, yeah, like, you're right. That is, like, kind of a, a Mueller thing. Because let's be honest. I mean, LBJ started the fucking Vietnam War. I don't, like, what, oh, yeah, his attorney general was so much fucking better than John Mitchell. And then it shows up in the guise of, of course, God, Michael Keaton. You know, he's, he's you know, he's doing the Keaton thing. You know, it's always a pleasure. Uh, he, he, they go to interview him, and, like, the, the Nixon Justice Department guys are there. And it's leading to this moment where he's just like, yeah, I wanted them in the room so that I can tell you. I'm testifying in your case. And they're like, but sir, it's illegal. And then he's like, then arrest me or get the fuck out of my house. You know, it's like a very good, like, you know, big stirring moment. And then they like, they let Ramsey Clark testify voir dire without the jury and then basically strike it from the record. But what he testifies to is that his Justice Department looked into this and declined to prosecute any of them because they found that the Chicago police started the riot. Which right. is an important, an, an, a very important detail when people talk about the Chicago riots. This was not a, this was a police riot. All of the violence yep. was instigated by the Chicago Police Department. And there is one scene where like they, they show like the, the shit really going down. It's brief, but I think to his credit, Sorkin does show just how brutal and nasty these police officers were. Like, you know, attack, hitting women with batons, just like really savage hold, violence. Uh, hold, I, hold on. But, but wait, he, he, he has to use rape in the middle of a protest to make a point about how 
crazy things are. I mean, that um, the shit he did with was, the protest yeah. was just equally it was insane. Really weird. Yeah. And, yeah. And no, he also, does include well, that's, a, that's an attempted rape. That's a tell. He does include an attempt. Like, there's, there's some frat boys try to do an attempted rape of this like a uh, hippie woman who's waving an American flag. And again, like many of the things in this movie, I don't know a how historically accurate rape. that. Yeah, a public rape in the middle of yeah. a riot, which seemed, I don't know. I'm talking about Mo- like the, most the, rapists. Most rapists like to rape when there's 100 people running around them. Crowd. Yeah, yeah there's performer personalities. <laughs> but he needs to raise the stakes because yes, yes. in Sorkin's mind, what the, cops, what the cops are doing isn't that bad. You're right. So if you throw the rape in now, yeah. it's bad. The 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 situation on the hill where they where the cops surround the statue of the the horse soldier whatever that guy is, you know what happened the opposite. It's things like this that I don't understand what the fuck he's doing. The kids ran up and took the hill, and then the cops came and said, "Get off the statue." And then there was a whole standoff, and they ended up going up and beating people and pulling them down. And just by switching that little thing, he changes the power dynamic of what's happening. And there's no reason You're right. for it. I mean, I just like I, I was just thinking like uh, Hunter S. Thompson was famously at the Chicago conventions and saw it all go down. And in his written accounts of it, he says that he saw in the course of one night five or six beatings of people by the Chicago Police Department that made anything he witnessed the Hell's Angels do while writing that book pale in comparison. He said he saw like the most savage acts of violence that he's ever witnessed. And he said the, what the Chicago Police Department did, just beating people on the ground with their boots, with batons, with whatever was at their hands, made the Hells Angels look like basically the Boy Scouts. Like he said, like he had never seen the Hells Angels beat anyone as badly as the Chicago Police did that night. And I think that and I think that's greatly missing from the movie. And I also think how this is a, a, a way he also. Like the the fact that the system is on trial for the protesters is completely lost. The first defendant for the for the uh, defense was a guy who worked in a candy a candy factory, uh, and he he happened to photograph the cops beating people while they were laying on the ground, and so he was the first witness, and he got fired from the next day from his job, and then the defense was like, okay, we clearly can't have actual witnesses on, and then they just went batshit with it. But it's stuff like that that's missing that. Like the brutality of cops beating someone and then a guy doing the right thing and getting fired, like that's just all gone from this story in Sorkin's world. And uh, <laughs> there's, there's, another, there's another moment I found funny where it was like uh, of the night of the actual convention, like the nighttime riot, not the Hill one, where they get a recording of Tom Hayden at oh. the band shell basically instigating a riot and i thought what was so funny about that is like up to up to that point hayden is like mr respectability and like mr hey like you know let's hey the cops have to do their job too and then he sees his friend rennie davis get beat up and just grabs a mic and is like blood we want blood (laughs) (laughs) he wants his and then like it's very important though because as sorkin views hayden as the stand-in for him that moment becomes all about the responsibility of a writer and omitting certain key yes. pronouns. That's <laughs> and it's right. like Hayden's yeah. problem was that he didn't yeah. he didn't write it carefully enough because Hayden's defense there, he's like he had some line about like if blood is gonna spill, then it should spill all over the city. Is that he said the line was supposed to be then our blood should spill oh, all over the city. But he comes across like fucking Conan the Barbarian, like baying for the fucking death of these cops. In Sorkin's Sorkin mind, he was just before. like you can't drop a single syllable of my dialogue, much That's less right. a word. Yeah. It would be like missing uh, a note in a symphony. No, and like, and like that moment there being such a key moment in the movie is like Sorkin being like, you know, what really matters is the, is the, real, the real power oh. in our society. It's writers. 
And his writers have well, to be he, very careful. He has to be very he careful with their words. Yeah. He he got that. I believe he hung out with Hayden. I think he's the only person yes. he ever talked to. And Hayden told him this. Hayden told him this. And Hayden told him that. And there's this interview with Sorkin where he talks about the great thing when you're writing something like this is to have a secret that like nobody else. And he knew the one thing he had while he was working on this that other people have not talked about is he knew Tom Hayden had neglected to say our not a bomb. That was gonna be Shh, 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 yeah, I was stop. wondering why it's all the characters, fucking, when they it's hear that, everything. It's, like, it's everything. <laughs> oh my like, god! Well, yeah. and it provided as, as it. Though, it was like they were living in a different universe. Yeah, and it, <laughs> it, it provided crowd, if he had the, said our blood, as if the crowd would have gone, oh okay. And it provided for the sake of um of uh, Abby Hoffman uh, telling uh, Tom Hayden that I've always respected you, which is all yes. Aaron Sorkin wants. It's yep. all yeah. he wants. So all he wants. So like the, it's all leading to this this climax. It's all leading to this climax of the movie that because they have a, a, you know an audio recording of Tom Hayden basically instigating uh. a riot, he can't testify on their behalf. He was going to be their golden boy because he was the most like respectable sort of common sense member of the of the group. And but he wasn't in the trial. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't. God fuck. He what? He just wasn't. He was fucking. He was getting yelled at for laying on the table and shit. Like what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, wait a second. He wait, wasn't guys. he wasn't like the square button up. He was a serious revolutionary. And also there wasn't like this constant animosity between him and Abby Hoffman. Like they disagreed on tactics and the way to approach the to- the trial, but it wasn't this like it wasn't daddy issues. It yeah. wasn't Sorkin's daddy yeah. issues. I, I got to I got to go back a little in time. There's there's one moment in this movie. I wonder if you guys clock. It's when Hayden and Kunstler go to Ramsey Clark's house. To interview him, and when they go inside, Ramsey Clark's uh, African American lady, who is his like oh. uh, uh, sort of like housekeeper, um, says to Tom Hayden, um, "I read in the newspaper that you were the only one who stood for the judge after what he did to Bobby." Which the movie shows him like they they all decide they pass a note in the court to say, "Don't stand for JH." And when he leaves the court, Tom Hayden sort of reflexively stands and like looks like he's the asshole. And I swear to God. I was so expecting in that moment of dialogue where Hayden yes. goes, sorry, it was just a reflex. I was so expecting Sorkin to make the housekeeper say, you were right to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good to have respect for the it law. Also, we, it just, also wasn't just, just an episode. It also just, it wasn't just him. It was also Florence. But go ahead. No, we just did an episode of the West Wing where uh, Bartlett's talking to Lily Tomlin's character oh. and she had written something about how somebody should poison uh, the president. And and he's like, this is why I'm hiring you. And she goes, what? He says, yes, because you called me the president. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the only I thing mean, who, that who can else make... Who trying to poison? The, <laughs> the only thing that make, can make Sorkin uh, come is watching the videotape of Clinton saying, it depends on what the definition of is, is. <laughs> <laughs> So, but he loves respect. Yeah, <laughs> so like, well, yeah and like, he loves words. They, they they make Hayden out to be way more, like as we said, way more of a square than he really was, and like way less radical than he than he was. Because I mean, like, it, it gets this thing where, like, okay, Hoffman is going to have to be the guy to testify rather than Hayden, and like, so, it's sort of like the pre climax of the movie is when Hoffman says to Hayden, "Why? What is it about me that you don't like?" And he's like, I'm tired, of being, I'm tired of answering that question. You know, I wish I didn't have to answer it. And he's like, there's no cameras here. It's just me and you. One time, what is it about me that you don't like? 
And then Tom Hayden's like, okay, put, put you know, put, have a sip of coffee and strap in, bucko, because I'm going to spit some <laughs> epic fucking truth at you. And what he says is, you know, it's the newsroom West Wing line of like, for the next 50 years, when anyone thinks about progressive politics, they're going to think about you smoking dope and like, you know, having sex and just being like a, a spoiled, petulant baby. And they're not going to think about, you know, justice or equality when they go to the fucking polling place, when they go to vote. And like, you know, you're going to hamstring us. And like that, that is, that is Sorkin's like whole, like that's him, like just putting his fucking like entire weight down on the audience, just being like, Hey, I'm talking to you here, talking to you, dum-dums watching Netflix right now. All you millennials out there, this is for you. Uh, so another thing is that, um, Hoffman is pretty uh, vocal about saying that speeches are archaic and a thing of the past. Like that's, really his his idea of how this all works now and he's that's why he's hates him. that's why he's doing the performance art so he is he is telling with his existence and his philosophy he's telling sorkin as sorkin reads whatever he reads about him to fuck off every single time he reads about hoffman hoffman is saying fuck you aaron sorkin this is a grudge movie it's mm. another grudge movie by sorkin which is all he does his entire his entire body of work is based on grudges and settling yeah. grudges and and someday he'll yeah. someday he will do a script and there will be podcasters in there being dicks to him i fucking guarantee right. it and how wrong they yes. are. i guarantee <laughs> it. i can't wait i can't wait yeah. but that and but that's really what it is good. he doesn't believe in the speech and sorkin only believes in the speech that's all he yeah. believes in yeah. and Hoffman and also was a cool funny guy that people liked and made sorkin look like the fucking talentless square that he was in college or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah. And it's but, funny because uh, th there's a scene with Bobby Seale where he's like, you know, in, um, in, in jail talking to Hayden and Kunstler. And he's like, you and you, you know, we're different. You and Hoffman got into this because you hate your dad because he called you a fag or whatever. It's all daddy issues for you. For me, it's life yes. or death. And like that's Sorkin saying like, oh, it's daddy issues for me, too. But I'm acknowledging that for uh, uh, black people don't have uh, parental right. psychology. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're better. They're black better than I am. people don't have parents. Yeah, they're, they're better than I am. <laughs> well, he is woke now. He yeah. has he has rights, you know, because he's done to kill a mockingbird and he's now. <laughs> so it's well, speaking all of daddy issues, though. I thought, you know, I don't expect people to like focus on their identity when they write. I think that's like oftentimes, especially in our current moment pretty fucking cheap but the glaring absence of the intra-jewish animosity that was a yes. major feature of that trial and yes. i knew it going in i'm yeah. like they are not going to show abby hoffman screaming that judge hoffman was a nazi saying that he would have helped hitler he called him a shanda yeah shanda for the goyim oh yes even worse a shanda for the goyim <clears throat> which is like uh, uh, it, 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 like the the exact translation is like a, a a Jew for the for the Gentiles, but like meaning that like you uh, justify their anti-Semitism. It's the nastiest, fucking yeah. meanest, most it, like it. It's a really intimate animosity. He's not like aloof. He left out all the funny shit. Yeah, he left out all the cool shit. He left out all the really intense stuff where it's like you would have helped Hitler. That is an insane thing to say in a judge. One of his um, uh, contempt charges was literally listed as cursing the judge in Yiddish. <laughs> but, but Amber, I, I think I think to Dave's point about like writing down the names of Vietnamese people who have been killed by our military in this war. 
he like yeah. he he doesn't like Abby Hoffman and looks at this movie as sort of like a repudiation of Hoffman and i.e. people like him, people who are rude and funny and popular, but you know not serious. Um, but at the same time, if he'd included the things where Hoffman was accusing the judge of like basically being you know a, a capo, oh. like he would have like helped Hitler during the Holocaust, then like that would have made Abby Hoffman beyond the pale. And he can't have that. He can't really have people like he would be too uncomfortable with that. Like, you know, writing him as a character in a way that would put him beyond the pale of Aaron Sorkin's respectability or like, you know, his vision of morality. And yeah. like he would that would have made Abby Hoffman like too unlikable in his mind to include well, that detail in the script. And it would have made their interaction too intimate for Sorkin to be able to write. <laughs> I also think that he doesn't know what to do with uh the fact that the 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 seven are putting the system on trial and exposing the system for how fucking crazy and stupid it is and so he doesn't know what to do with it. if a character calls the judge Hitler well that just frazzles his mind because <laughs> nothing happened the judge just went well you're in contempt and then they were like okay Hitler like it just kept going on and so in his mind he doesn't know what to do with that because no that's our system that's our courtroom he can't well, he just his brain yeah. f- frazzles well Dave, okay well and this, this gets to like the climax of the movie where hoffman himself takes the stand and is cross-examined by schultz and like this is this like this is where sorkin is like gets to like flex his pure sorkinism like the the soaring majestic inspirational dialogue some of it is from the actual transcript but it's his deviations from it that reveal mm-hmm. the hollow misery at the core of this movie because the whole thing is talking about like you're saying like the actual trial was about them putting the system on trial and making this trial itself an absurdity to show how absurd it was that they're being prosecuted and how unethically the prosecution was acting. So when it really comes down to it, what does Abby Hoffman say on the stand to defend himself? Uh, he this says is the, the worst. He says, he says our, our, the institutions of American democracy are wonderful things. They're just currently populated by some very terrible people. After showing you for the previous two hours that our American institutions are awful, miserable, evil things that can like crush you like a fucking bug. If they, no matter, no matter what fucking legal precedent or evidence or any of that shit, it would seem to suggest that our legal system is pretty much shit. But then, no, he's got to bring it back the last moment. And then, like Schultz says to him, how would you peacefully overthrow your government? And Hoffman says, we do it every four years. Voting is a peaceful revolution. Convention because they were going to nominate uh, a, a guy who is in favor of continuing the Vietnam War to run against another guy who is in favor of continuing the Vietnam War. I yeah. don't get your point. And at the end of the day, it, did, it didn't even matter because there's an electoral college. So, like, it's all irrelevant yeah. anyway. Yeah. He, but that good. Does that go to his how incurious he is about these actual people? Or is he just impervious to allowing thoughts from other ideologies into his fucking skull? No, this is this is that fucking liberal that we all know that you all deal with constantly who begins every fucking argument with you. Like, look, man, I'm as progressive as you are. Yeah. So. I mean, like, and, and that sums it up. And then it gets to, like, the er climax, like the moment in which my brain completely checked out of this movie is that sentencing, Judge Hoffman gives Tom Hayden the opportunity to make a statement before he issues sentencing. And he says, now, be brief, be respectful, and be remorseful. And I will show, you know, I'll take that in consideration during sentencing. Wait, you missed something, by the way. Can I just say you missed a huge movement in this film? Dellinger. 
Oh, punching a guy? Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Dellinger, for people who don't know, Dellinger's a socialist. He is a pretty badass pacifist. He 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 went to jail in World War II for not fighting in the war. He is a fucking to-the-bone pacifist. And in the courtroom, he gets so mad that he punches a bailiff. <laughs> yeah. It's even better than getting your rocks off with a girl or riding a motorcycle. <laughs> It's the but craziest. Also they made him so. They made him into such a Pollyanna. He was not a Pollyanna. He was just like, I'm not going to war. I'm yeah. going to jail instead of going to war. He was cool and tough. Although I will say, I think uh, World War II was justified. Just going out there. That's fair. That's fair. You started a whole thing online, but whatever. People are going to flip yeah. out. Uh, but but he he just undermined. Everything yeah, his, that his, his essential is. his essential core of pacifism yeah. by being like they pushed him too far and he just cold cock one of the bailiffs like I, no it would be like Aaron Sorkin making a movie about Malcolm X and and, and showing him sitting there eating pork <laughs> <laughs> no it's good man. it's really good you got to try these ribs man falling off the bones but at the end of the day he doesn't care because he just wants that moment on screen like that's his idea yeah. of how unjustified this trial was as opposed to having these guy guys called the judge hitler and and just they had food all over the fucking table all the time they were they were eating seeds and shit like it was just fucking chaos so getting to like the very very end of the movie is tom hayden is given a chance to like make a statement before sentencing and what does he do he brings out that journal that Rennie Davis was writing of just only the American war dead. And he's like, uh, uh, Private David Coleman, 19. Like, and he just starts reading all 5,000 names of the Americans who have been killed in the war. And then what do his co-defendants do? They stand in reverent, solemn, rec- like basically hand over and- heart. <laughs> Recognition as as the judge, favorite Frank Langella is just like order, order. I and demand his, that you stop His monocle pops off, and his top hat goes sideways. <laughs> oh, order, order! <laughs> the crowd slow clap. I demand oh, that you God. stop respecting our honored fallen war dead. Stop being patriotic. I'm holding you in contempt. And then the FBI lady stands. Richard Schultz stands, and his co-counsel yeah. is just like, "Hey, buddy, what are you doing, asshole?" And he's just like, "I'm respecting the fallen." <laughs> and it just, it just, for him, it's just like the whole Vietnam War anti-war movement, the whole 60s counterculture is just comes to a head. And like the, the, the ultimate righteousness of their cause is borne out by their willingness to fucking reverently pay respect to our American boys who died in Vietnam. When and in like, actuality, a- they... They draped an American flag over the defense table and a Viet Cong flag over the defense table. And then they started reading the names of both Vietnamese and Americans who were dead. And then the bailiffs and Abby Hoffman had a tug of war over the Vietnamese flag. And then they finally got it away and they left the American flag. And Abby Hoffman, after the trial, was like, did you see how those assholes disrespected the American flag by leaving it there? Like the whole (laughs) thing just had a different level to it. And it was immediately stopped. The judge immediately put a stop to it there was no go no one gave a shit about yeah, it was just yeah. you know and then it tells you where, where what everyone went on to do and you know blah blah blah. and then like you know it's just it's a, it's the dead poet society moment at the end where everyone's standing <laughs> on the table going oh captain my captain you know and you know yeah, yeah. he said five you know you're not going to read these five thousand names and it's like if they included the vietnamese names it'd be considerably more than five thousand let's put it that way um, and then I just say, like, say, like, the very end when the credits roll, I had the, uh, the captions on. And I think, like, the perfect, perfect moment for me in this movie was right as the credits roll and, like, a song begins to play. The captions just said, showed me the, the line, 
Hear My Voice by Celeste. Yeah, and I just yeah, love the yeah. name. I just love the, I just love the perfect end of the movie. It's some schmaltzy cornball song by an artist called Celeste that's titled Hear My Voice. And that pretty much sums up the entire point of view of this movie. It's just, you know. Well, how is there not a single song from that era in the fucking movie? They Netflix doesn't have enough it. money. They can't fucking pay the rights or any, you know, fucking going up to like, see the spirit like in the sky or anything. All these hippies are sitting around and they're listening to some horrible, like, like folk band <laughs> yeah. do just one look from, you know, 1959. Yeah. <laughs> it, I think it was, I think it was actually the Avid brothers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Where's Fortunate Son, man? Yeah, yeah. Bring I mean, out the I classic. I'm kind of glad. I don't know. I think they probably <laughs> wanted to like save money on it. Uh, can I just say about the credits though, at the end? It, it made me fucking insane because as a as a child, sort of my my first political heroes really were. This is this is you know I, I came after this era, but these guys were around were Muhammad Ali and Abby Hoffman. Yeah. And to sum up Abby Hoffman at the end of the movie with Abby Hoffman wrote a best selling book, though the numbers of copula- of copies in circulation is unknown. As the title was "Steal This Book," he killed himself in 1989. You leave out all the amazing shit yeah. that he did while he was fucking undercover or hiding out from the police. I mean, he's it, it's such it's such a he has such disdain for this. Yeah, he was moving weight. <laughs> <laughs> but he but you know Tom Hayden gets elected to this and plays in the system and does all these wonderful things. And you're like, they, rah, rah, they don't mention that he married guy. Jade Fonda though. They weren't like, yeah, like no, elected yeah, to the no, California state democratic legislature. Nothing about the fact that he married Jane Fonda or endorsed Hillary. Clinton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the judge was also working with the FBI and was giving the FBI yes. uh, right. uh, approval to bug the defense attorney's offices and just telling them that, yes, he would hold them in contempt tomorrow. And like all of this shit was going on. And how the fuck you leave that out of a movie like this? Of course, he loves the FBI, so he can't. He can't put it in his script, but the FBI are just fucking monsters. And that's just like, nah. in the scene where they strike the two jurors that like the night before at their sort of like clubhouse, they talk about like jurors number six and 11. I, I can tell they're sympathetic to us the next day. Like the, those two jurors houses got sent letters by the Black Panthers threatening them. That was like clearly just written by the FBI. And yeah. the movie, I was, I kept expecting the movie to make it explicit that like the reason they knew that was because they had bugged their fucking office. Yeah. And it never, ever is they explicit about did. that. They're just like, oh, lucky guess. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's mentioned in passing in a piece of dialogue where it's like, you bug our offices. And it's like, wait, what? Wait, you didn't show that at all. It's bad. I mean, I, I'm sorry you like this, Will. <laughs> <laughs> and Matt. You're both Look, uh, disappointing you people. Enjoy, you can enjoy. You can enjoy McDonald's. You can still get a stomachache afterwards. Dave, Dave, I just love movies. Okay, <laughs> movie Sandy, I'm gonna watch it. And Sandy Canyon nine times over out of here. ten, I'm gonna like it. I'm just. I like the movies. I love the magic of movies. I like seeing actors. Do the, yeah, you know. So I can. I can overlook how evil it is. Uh, I don't know but, if you would be interested in uh, ending on a reading of sure of court transcripts, but. I really do recommend everyone get this. Uh, just get the court transcripts because it's a laugh riot, yeah. and it's 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 so disappointing that this is what got made out of this trial, which was in fact yes, it was a major political trial, but it was a comedy. Um, so these are a few excerpts, uh, Mr. Hoffman. This is this is Abby. Uh, the court is the judge. Uh, 
Mr. Hoffman, your idea is justice is the only obscenity in the room, you stank voden. Shonda for the goyim, huh? Obviously, it was a provocation. That's why this has gone on here today, because you threatened him with cutting off his freedom of speech in the, uh, he gave in Milwaukee. The court, Mr. Marshall, will you ask defendant Hoffman to, Mr. Hoffman, this ain't the standard club. The Marshall, Mr. Hoffman, uh, Mr. Hoffman, oh, tell him to stick it up his bowling ball. How's your war stock doing, Julie? <laughs> Let's see here. Mr. Hoffman, you put Dellinger in jail because you have lost faith in the jury system. I hear you people haven't lost a case in, uh, before a jury in 24 tries. Only the Krebiosen people got away. By the way, Krebiosen was a marketed cancer drug that they later found out was just mineral oil. Uh. <laughs> and the pharmaceutical company did not get convicted by Hoffman. Uh, we're going to go away, too. That's why you're throwing us in the jail this way. Uh, Mr. Hoffman, the judge in Nazi Journey ordered sterilization. Why don't you do that, Judge Hoffman? The court. Mr. Marshall, will you have Mr. Hoffman to remain quiet, please? Order him to re- remain quiet. Mr. Hoffman, order us, order us. you got to cut our, our tongues out to order us, Julie. You railroaded Seal so he wouldn't get a trial, a jury trial either. Four years for contempt without a jury trial. The Marshal, Mr. Hoffman, will you shut up? Mr. Hoffman, no, I won't shut up. I ain't an automaton like you. I don't want to be a tyrant. I don't care for the tyrannical system. Best friend blacks ever had, huh? How many blacks are in Drake Towers? How many in the Standard Club? How many own stock in Brunswick Corporation? The court. Mr. Marshall, please have that man refrain from using these epithets, which were left out. Mr. Rubin, it's just descriptive. I'm just describing what I see. The Marshall, for the sixth time, shut up. Mr. Hoffman, epithet. (laughs) The whole thing is like that from beginning to end. Obviously, like, they cut out, like... uh, you know, the very dull proceedings part, but it's just them screaming, you're a Nazi. I mean, uh, Sorkin would go to the, the, the Caribbean and see a beautiful sunset and paint a picture of it. And it would just be gray. I mean, that's all he fucking does. He just grays everything out. It'd be his feet. feet. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. That was uh, the trial of the Chicago seven. Another, another, another sterling entry in our Aaron Sorkin uh, master's work. Before you sentence us, before you sentence us, Dave and I would like to um, read aloud the name of all the producers on the film. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I highly recommend it. Go to the movie's IMDb page and look, I can't believe how many producers there are on this movie. I've I've never seen this, but I, I would imagine this is because it was in, it was, they were trying to make it for like 15 years. A decade at least, yeah. Mm. So it's gotta it got to be why. passed around a lot. I've just never seen anything like this before, though. It's really just amazing. Yeah, it's like the Hadron Collider paper. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Once again, uh, Josh Olson and Dave Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, their podcast about Aaron Sorkin is the West Wing thing. And the West Wing has just had a West Wing reunion. And you guys are, of course, doing a West Wing reunion special. When is that dropping? It's, it's, up, it's up now. Hell yeah. Uh, go, go, to Vimeo, go to Vimeo and look for the West Wing thing reunion thing also announces that we're starting a Patreon. Who's on that? Uh, I just, well, pretty much everybody I'm looking at right now <laughs> pops up at one point or another. Uh, yes. Felix and Amber were our, were our main guests and we, uh, we went, uh, we went, uh, we went uh, ballistic on the, uh, the special, but we've got a ton of other guests. We've got music from uh, our, our great uh, music guy, Diesel Boots, 
and uh, uh, Will Will made a little short film that uh, could give you a seizure, but it's uh, it's great. Also, uh, the, the the Patreon isn't so that um, Josh and Dave could buy second castles. It's uh, so that they can correct. pay the tech people that produce this, and it's a really good show. Yes. And uh, it's a great uh, gateway drug for libs who might be uh, questioning. Yeah, we do. We find that we we get. Uh, I think it was just Dave and me screaming at each other about politics. No one would listen. But we get all these people who are lured in because because we're hate watching a beloved TV show. And if you if and, you if you and, want to, if you want a wedge to separate uh, a lib in your life from the the Sorkin mindset, just yes. point out the way he treats women in any of his mm-hmm. TV shows. Yeah, that would yeah. be a, we do a segment be, every that would week. Be a good place or, you know, to start. Tell them to tell them to listen to the West Wing thing. Uh, wing pill them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So once again, guys, guys thank Dave and Josh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, the, re- the, the rest of you, gang, uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.